Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast, where, as I said today in a chat with Patty LaFile, we read the racist stuff so you don't have to. That's right. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. And each episode, we get together and talk about a person, place, thing, or event that shaped modern heathenry. But first, we have to make a commercial announcement because I'm evidently becoming an influencer. I'm still not entirely up on all of this newfangled interwebs thing, but it seems that if you're an influencer, people send you lots of free stuff. And I got just picked it up yesterday. I got sent a free copy of a new book that's out that I haven't had time to read, but it looks really good. It's called Miracles of Our Own Making, A History of Paganism. The author is Liz Williams. And I'm holding it up to the microphone right now so that you can all see it. It's got a very nice cover. It was published by uh, Reaction Books in London, and it's distributed in America by the University of Chicago Press. And it's a history of paganism in Britain from the Stone Age all the way to the present day. There's not an awful lot specifically about heathenry in it. Although they do discuss the schism between the white supremacists and everyone else, and they mention inclusive initiatives like Declaration 127. So we do get that much press. There's also talk about something we talked about in a previous episode. It's Maria Gimbutas's theory of Europe being a peaceful matriarchal society until the arrival of the warlike patriarchal Indo-European invaders who basically ruined everything and brought in patriarchy and male dominance and crotch scratching and belching and things like that. And there's a lot of discussion about this and some general agreement that Gimbutas's case was not very well supported and yet at the same time very attractive to a lot of people. And Williams quotes a scholar who points out that if we did once live in matriarchal societies, it's kind of a problem because evidently somehow they didn't work and the patriarchy took over. So how did the patriarchy took over? He quotes another scholar named Elizabeth Gould Davis who claimed that apparently seriously, because of their carnivorous diet, men grew enormous penises and women were so turned on that they voluntarily surrendered their power. So make of that what you will. Yeah, you have any comment on the matter that you can share with the class? Not, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're the same kindred, and our kindred, like most, has a group chat. You shared that in the group chat, and I think it broke all of us for a good 15 minutes. Right. Well, it seems like the kind of thing that people could put to a proper scientific test. You know, yeah. guys could just, you know, eat steak for six months and see if, well... See if they feel their patriarchy rising. And if you would like to know more about this general topic and not just about the theory that meat eating makes you, I don't want to know, you can go to our uh, episodes 12 and 13, our Proto-Indo-European People and Language. Right. 
So anyway, so thank you very much, Reaction Books, for the free book, Miracles of Our Own Making. Everybody should go out and buy it. Please send more books. In fact, anybody who's listening, you are more than welcome to send me more books. I don't have nearly enough. I didn't hear you say that, and I will not tell your wife. Yeah, my my wife might beg to differ just a little bit. Yeah. All right. So previously on the Heathen History Podcast, we talked about the first Viking invasion of America and uh, what it has to do with baking powder mm-hmm. and weird stone towers in New England. Mm-hmm. Right. We talked about the discovery of Leif Erikson's voyage and what that did especially in the 19th century when it was rediscovered by American intellectuals who thought it made a very good narrative about the founding of what would become the United States. But now we can move up a little bit to America in the later 1800s, and this is a time when immigration is starting to explode, probably first with the Irish beginning in 1846 with the potato famine, Germans, especially after the failed revolution of 1848, and then increasing numbers of Italians, Poles, Jews, Chinese in the West, beginning to create some problems for the older settlers of English stock who are beginning to worry about getting taken over. And this is kind of a very old attitude that America was great until all of my ancestors got here, but right after that, they really should have pulled up the ladder. Ain't that how it always is? Right, right. I'm sure that in 50 years, descendants of today's Mexican immigrants will be getting upset about the influx of Uzbeks or whatever the next uh, wave of immigration is. And then in 100 years, the Uzbeks will be freaking out about the... Chadians or something like that. You have to be an immigrant in this country for a while, but eventually you gain the most important right of U.S. citizenship, which is the right to bitch about the new immigrants coming in. So we start talking about groups who are starting to make what are called homemaking myths. And what these are are Different immigrant groups are asserting their quote-unquote place at the table. And often you have multiple groups kind of in conflict with that. Right. So the first type of myth we have is blood sacrifice myths. These are immigrant groups who fought and served in the U.S. military and died even in many cases, most notably the Germans and the Irish in the Civil War. Yeah, the Irish fighting 69th? Yeah, the Irish had the 69th Infantry in the uh, U.S. Civil War that had one of the highest casualty rates, possibly the highest of any Union regiment. That was primarily of Irish descent, and there are still Irish-American folk songs about the fight in 69th. And that's something that Irish immigrants could point to and say, look, you know, we didn't get here first. But we shed our blood in the battle's heat. Now we're all Americans, as Steve Earle once said. And Germans could do much the same thing. There was a huge German presence in what used to be the West, as in St. Louis, 
and even Little Rock, and a great many of them joined the Union cause. They had fled Germany because they were liberal revolutionaries. They certainly had no common cause with the aristocratic slave culture of the South. And at places like the Battle of Pea Ridge, Arkansas, the largest battle fought west of the Mississippi River, and it's about four hours from where we live, there were two entire brigades that were almost entirely German-speaking. And because we can't get through a Heathen History podcast episode without a gratuitous song, I'm going to sing one for you now, so now's your chance to mute the audio if you must. General Franz Siegel was a um, German officer who had come to this country and become a Union general. Unfortunately, he wasn't that good, but he was very inspiring to the German immigrants who sang songs like, When I comes from the Deutsch country, I work sometimes at baking. Then I keeps a lager beer saloon, and then I goes shoemaking. But now I was a soldier been to save the Yankee Eagle, to schlauch them damn secession folk, I'm going to fight mit Siegel. Ja, das ist true, I speaks mit you, I'm going to fight mit Siegel. I won't sing any more, but that was an actual song, and yes, it was in fact written in uh, a rather cartoony German accent. But it does express the real feeling at the time, and it was something that later generations of Germans could point to and say, see, we earned our right to be here with you know, blood and suffering and sacrifice. Just to give a scope on how many people we're talking about, there were 200,000 native-born Germans that served in the Union Army and a quarter of a million first-generation German-Americans who served. At the time... I believe there was only about 1.3 million Germans living in the United States. That's a huge percentage of the population there mm -hmm. to serve in the Civil War. Right. And I don't have numbers for how many Irish there were, but you know, when the uh, Civil War broke out, it had only been about 15 years since the potato blight had triggered so much immigration to America. So there were plenty of Irish that signed on as well. And the second type of myth that immigrant groups can point to is foundation myths by making a case that a group was first to colonize the U.S. or at least among the first. One thing that's been in the news of late, these are not immigrants as such, but one thing that's been in the news is the 1619 Project an attempt to teach history from the point of view of enslaved Africans, which is a grand old American tradition that began in 1619. We've had African slavery almost from the beginning of the colonies that would become the United States. And you can also point to the blood sacrifice myths there because we've had African Americans in every war starting with the American Revolution. The Boston Massacre was touched off by a mixed-race man named Crispus Attucks, and you can trace that all the way to groups like the Red Tail Airmen of World War II. But you can also have groups that will point to, you know, the English can say, you know, we were the first here, and the Welsh were some of the first here, and of course the Native Americans are looking at us all going, huh, okay, yeah, right, go ahead. 
Yeah, that kind of reminds me of being in elementary school and running outside to be the first one at the monkey bars with a swing. And then it's our swings. Right. Because we were here first. That's the logic of that myth there. Yeah, we got our grubby fingerprints on this land before anybody else did. We have licked it. It is ours. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the third type of myth, the ideological foundation myth, is the idea that an immigrant group's ideals have always been part of the national ideology of the United States. So Greek immigrants, for example – might not have come particularly early in U.S. history, but they could point to the powerful impact of ancient Greek thinkers on the drafting of the Constitution and general political thought in the early United States anyway. So different groups have pointed to all of these as ways of trying to assert their right to be in the U.S. against the forces of prejudice that would deny them that right. And... This really started coming into play when immigration to the U.S. exploded in the mid-1800s, and that wave of immigration started to include traditionally Catholic groups, the Irish, the Italians, and the Poles, for example, and that unfortunately fed on anti-Catholic prejudice, which dates back, of course, to the Protestant Reformation and is not entirely extinct today. Lauren, how many times has somebody told you them Catholics ain't Christians? Oddly enough, I had a discussion about this today Oh, in regards to why certain evangelical groups were weaponizing this as a way to discourage people from voting for Joe Biden. Mm. We won't get into the politics, but like that's a conversation I had today. And I grew up fundamentalist Baptist. I would say that my family were probably the only ones in our church that didn't hold to that super hard. And that's because there's a chunk, you know, my family's from South Texas and South Louisiana. There's a chunk of my family that's Catholic. So mm-hmm. it's real hard to go to Christmas with, you know, your uncle and aunt who are devout Catholics and tell them they don't believe in Jesus. It gets awkward real fast. Right. I was once taking part in a kind of ill-advised evolution versus creation debate at beautiful Heritage Baptist Temple in uh, South Little Rock. And this wasn't me. One of the people I was with tried to win the crowd over to an acceptance of evolution by pointing out that uh, the Roman Catholic Church had no problem with it at all. In retrospect, this was probably not a very good tactical move. Somebody yelled, heretics! Yeah. So... Yeah. By the way, that debate is all over YouTube. Oh. I have found at least a hundred copies of it on YouTube. Oh, I, yeah. it's real interesting to see who puts it out because on one hand, there's literally like clips that they try to say they converted converted you to Christianity, which is mm-hmm. obviously false. All right. And then there's a ton of clips from people who are against the guy you were debating who talk about how you owned him. And having seen the full-length debate... Oh, God. Because that's also up. I agree with the second half. You owned him. But I will say that it is very much in the era in which it was filmed. It looks like something filmed in the early 2000s. So, uh yeah. You look like you're 12. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The entire thing, I kind of 
feel like it did about as much good as nailing Jello to the ceiling. But yeah, and I don't I don't do debates like that anymore. It just simply doesn't really accomplish very much. But still, if it like makes me a YouTube influencer, I'd be glad for people to start sending me free stuff. Ben, it's like a, it's like wrestling with a pig. Mm-hmm. You both get dirty, and the pig enjoys it. Dang right. All right. Anyway, so you have these tensions between you know the established settlers and this new wave of immigrants who speak outrageous languages and follow bizarre religions like Catholicism. And we saw in the last episode the uh, reaction from conservative New Englanders, poets like Longfellow and people like that, who are very keen to claim Leif Erikson and the Scandinavian discovery of America by the Vikings as support for you know the idea of very light-skinned Nordic and Germanic people being the first and you know putting their stamp on the continent you know we licked it first it's ours but the newcomers could point to a different hero a fellow by the name of Christopher Columbus who's been kind of in the news lately because there's a bunch of statues to him some of which have been taken down listen those statues weren't taken down Mm -hmm. They just fell over. They chose to jump in the lake. Oh, oh. And if they were taken down, they were asking for it by the way they were dressed. Yep, that's right. Okay, right. Yeah, so Christopher Columbus, in 1828, Washington Irving, publishes A History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. And it was the most widely read biography of the man until World War II. He did do his work to some degree. He read a lot of original Spanish language documents regarding Christopher Columbus, but he also took a lot of liberties, kind of like when they do a made-for-TV movie based on true events or like an episode of Law and Order. It was mostly fiction, but there were hints of truth in there. Right. Irving actually did get to go to Spain and got to read many of the documents that you know documented the voyage that were in Spanish archives. So it's not that the book is a complete fabrication, but he did paint a very definite picture of the voyage and depict Columbus as this great adventurous hero. And it's the kind of thing that I still grew up with in the 1970s. My grade school music teacher – we put on like patriotic pageants for the entertainment of the rest of the school. I guess that was the kind of thing a lot of people did. And uh, I think she might have actually written, In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He sailed and sailed and sailed and sailed and found this land for me and you. There's another verse. Want me to sing it? That's yeah, okay. Okay. It's already making me mad. Okay. All right. <laughs> I have an anti-Columbus bias, and I will freely admit that. Okay. Well, this is where the pro-Columbus bias comes from, is Irving's biography. His most widespread error was that Columbus proved that the world was round. He writes in Volume 1, 
Such were the unlooked-for prejudices which Columbus had to encounter at the very outset of his conference. To his simplest proposition, the spherical form of the earth were opposed figurative text of scripture. The roundness of the world was actually already well known by every educated person, and it had been since the Greeks. I don't know what your average uneducated sailor would have thought, but everybody who'd had some education was perfectly happy to accept that the world was round, although there was some debate as to whether you could actually sail across some of the climate zones because maybe the equator was so hot that humans could never go beyond it or something like that. But yeah, everybody was perfectly happy to admit a round earth. Irving also made Columbus into this great hero. I won't sing the song again, but Irving wrote at length, in spite of every difficulty and danger, he had accomplished his object. The great mystery of the ocean was revealed. His theory, which had been the scoff even of sages, was triumphantly established. He had secured to himself a glory which must be as durable as the world itself. He sailed and sailed and sailed and sailed and sailed and sailed. Oh. And... Sorry, my music teacher was not a very original lyricist. He sailed and sailed and sailed an, an awful lot. Did you ever have to read the poem in grade school where Columbus keeps saying, sail on, sail on, sail on and on? Yeah, I believe that would have been the fourth grade patriotic program. Mm-hmm. Right. We we did the same thing, only I went to such a small school that, like, patriotic program was fourth through sixth grade. My crowning achievement being dressing as the Statue of Liberty and riding in the back of a golf cart around the track at the football field in the sixth grade patriotic program. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. So you, you had the green crown and everything? Yeah, and we did rhythmic gymnastics my fifth grade year. So, yeah, it's uh Cool. Yeah, small town Arkansas. We mm -hmm. and also you mentioned that the Earth was round. That was very widely accepted, and now we're going to start getting tons of hate comments from the flat earthers. Ah, uh, already had to deal with the creationist earlier in my career. Let's not start with the flat earthers. Anyway, Irving did point out that Columbus had committed a few minor little peccadilloes like enslavering and murdering the natives. You know, everybody makes a few oopsies like that. He wrote that Columbus considered himself justified in making captives of the Indians and transporting them to Spain to have them taught the doctrines of Christianity and in selling them for slaves if they pretended to resist his invasions. In doing the latter, he sinned against the natural goodness of his character but he was goaded on by the mercenary impatience of the crown and by the sneers of his enemies at the unprofitable result of his enterprises. So, yeah, he might have enslaved and slaughtered native people and wiped out the population of a few islands, but he didn't really mean it. It was all the fault of his backers back in Spain because he had promised that he'd bring back ships laden to the gunnels with gold, and when it turned out that there wasn't actually much gold at all in the Caribbean, well, he had to bring them back with something, but it was really all the fault of his backer. You know, it was the fault of the stockholders, really. He was just doing his job. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, so it's Irving that kind of creates this narrative of Columbus as a uh, 
know, great hero against impossible odds. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, sailing ships across the Atlantic was a walk in the park. It was dangerous and it could have gone terribly wrong. And Columbus was certainly brave. But this hero worship ultimately comes from Washington Irving's book. And Irving mentioned that Columbus had kind of a dark side, but he kind of drew a curtain over passages like uh, Columbus's journal where he wrote about the natives that they are good to be ordered about to work and sow and do all that may be necessary and build towns and they should be taught to go about clothed and to adopt our customs. And he also wrote to Ferdinand and Isabella, I promise that if I am supported by our most invincible sovereigns with a little of their help, as much gold can be supplied as they will need. Indeed, as much of spices, of cotton, of mastic gum, whatever that is, also as much of aloes wood and as many slaves for the Navy as their majesties will wish to demand. So, yeah, not really a very nice person was Christopher Columbus. And that's something we didn't hear very much about back in the 1970s at good old Broadmoor Elementary in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I'm sure you didn't hear much of it in whatever your elementary school was. McCrory Elementary in the 1980s. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I'm from a small town. We we weren't creative in naming our elementary school. So 1892 was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of America. And so Italians in New York had started celebrating this back in 1866, San Francisco in 1868, but the first national Columbus Day was on that 400th anniversary, which happened to happen right after the lynching of 11 Italian immigrants. But this was just a one-time deal. We're trying to... God, this sounds familiar. Basically, it was a symbolic way to pacify a bunch of people that were mad that a group of Italian-Americans were essentially lynched. Hmm. Okay. Well, hopefully that was the last time that ever happened. I know. Why would ever the government try to do some, like, pacifying things to get a group of oppressed minorities to stop asking for equal rights? Why would that ever – when would that ever happen? Hmm. Said the giant Black Lives Matter sign painted on the street. Anyway. Right. So the U.S. didn't get around to proclaiming Columbus Day as a holiday until 1934, and they didn't make it a federal holiday until 1968. Now, states can decide what holidays they'll observe. Federal holidays are only extended to workers for the federal government, but that includes the post office and a lot of banks and things like that will close as well. And Columbus Day is only one of two federal holidays that's dedicated to a single person, the other being Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I guess we used to have Lincoln's birthday and Washington's birthday as separate federal holidays, but those have been combined into President's Day. So I guess we just have these two that are dedicated to single people. And – there's something about specifically Columbus Day I kind of want to talk about. Go ahead. There is this movement among, specifically I've noticed, Americans who identify as also true mm-hmm. to try to reclaim Columbus Day as Leif Erikson's Day. By the way, 
If you want more context on Leif Erikson, you can go back to the last episode. Why are you listening to this? You should go listen to part one. But, and to me, that's just, I can't decide if they're trying to like float upstream without a paddle because I doubt that's going to fly or if they're, I don't know, it feels tone deaf to me. Like, it's a weird reclaiming that I see in parts of the culture of our religion that I don't know. It just, listen, if you're listening to the podcast, go to our Facebook page. Tell me what you think. I'll, I'll have a post up about this. Tell me what you think about the reclaiming of Columbus Day as Leif Erikson Day, because quite frankly, it doesn't sit right with me. It feels weird. There were some states, at least, that proclaimed Leif Erikson Day to be the day after Columbus Day. I think Wisconsin and Minnesota, as you might expect, some presidents have actually proclaimed the day after Columbus Day to be Leif Erikson Day, but they haven't made it formally a federal holiday because I think that requires an act of Congress. So there is legal precedent for celebrating Leif Erikson Day close to Columbus Day, although I had not heard about reclaiming the day itself. Yeah, there's several groups that we've talked about on this show who have Columbus Day as a Leif Erikson feast day. Hmm. If you look at calendars for groups like the OR and the A Folk Assembly, right, the modern AFA, you see those as both as feast days, which I don't know. I have feelings. I have a lot of feelings about it, and we're going to talk about it on Facebook. So okay, that's there. That's my thought. I know that there is a movement now to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, which I'm all about. I am 100% behind that, especially given that Columbus didn't even actually discover the United States. But that's a history lesson you should have learned in school, and if you didn't, go read Wikipedia or something. Yeah, he basically spent his career mucking around in the Caribbean, still thinking that he'd actually found uh, Japan and China, which, in fact, uh, he obviously had not. But, yeah, he never set foot on the mainland. So would you have called him a Caribbean king? Now he's living his big dream. Enslaving natives for fun. Oh, all right. Yeah, that was your 80s yeah. uh, music right there. Okay. In 1893, there was a World's Fair held in Chicago commemorating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery, and it was called the World's Columbian Expedition. And culturally, it was a huge deal. It was a chance for American architects to show off some ideas of city planning the world's first Ferris wheel was built there. That was one of the great attractions. The entire fairgrounds were lit up with electric lights, which were still something of a novelty at the time. There were demonstrations of motion pictures, moving sidewalks. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer made its first appearance at the world's Columbian expedition, and so did Juicy Fruit Gum. And so did – here's the thing. There were – you know, performers from all over the world that came to display their talents at the World's Columbian Exposition. And there was a Middle Eastern belly dancer there who went by the name of Little Egypt. I'm not sure what her actual name was, but that's what they called her. And she became a very popular attraction at the World's Columbian Exposition because nobody had ever seen this sort of thing before. Most Americans didn't have the stomach for it. That was a joke. 
And anyway, her manager was faced with the task of having to come up with music for her to dance to. And he had no idea what actual Middle Eastern music really sounded like, but he had to write something convincing in a hurry. And the tune that he wrote out for the Belly Dancers act is still sung since we've been talking about grade school. In my day, it was still sung in um, grade school with a somewhat different set of lyrics. It's the song that goes, There's a place in France where the ladies wear no pants and the men don't care that they've got no underwear. Yeah, that was actually written for the belly dance act at the World's Columbian Exposition. That was actually sampled a few years ago by Kesha. Oh, yeah, I know. There's a place downtown where the freaks all come around. Yeah. It's a hole in the wall. It's a dirty free-for-all. Yeah. Sometimes you know things about popular culture that shock me, and that was one of them. <laughs> okay. Yes, I, I have hidden depths. <laughs> right. Anyway, slightly more seriously, the World's Columbian Exposition also hosted the very first ever Parliament of the World's Religions, and it was you know, important because it was, I guess, America's first introduction to actual you know scholars and thinkers – from India and China and places like that. There were Americans that got inspired that way. And incidentally, just to not forget that this is heathen history, Norway actually built a replica of the Gokstad ship, this wooden ship that was found in a burial mound, virtually complete, that had been excavated. They built a replica. They actually sailed it across the Atlantic and sailed it, I guess, up the St. Lawrence Seaway all the way to Chicago. It's still there. It was neglected in a park for a long time and got damaged and covered in graffiti. But uh, last I heard, they were working on trying to restore it. And I believe that the organization that Ben and I are both a part of, called The Troth, has actually presented it, what, the past two or three parliaments of world religions now? Mm-hmm. Yes, we have. So tie back into heathenry as well. So that's where that began. Right. So Italians were celebrating Columbus as a hero because he showed that Italians had been crucial for American history ever since the very beginning. However, anti-Catholic writers started picking up on Leif Erikson as the real discoverer of America. Writers who were anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and or anti-Italian. Even though Columbus, to be honest, had more influence on American history, even though he didn't reach the mainland, he started inspiring people who did and kind of touched off the you know race to grab colonies in the New World. Leif Erikson's voyage to Vinland didn't really lead to anything new. Once their attempts at forming a settlement were called off, they packed up, they left – Nobody particularly wanted to come back. So you could argue that Columbus was still more important in terms of what he got started. But anti-Catholic writers picked on Leif Erikson as the real discoverer of America. You know, we Nordic people licked it first, so it's ours. Not that Johnny-come-lately Christopher Columbus well, and I would think that to some degree, you know, although Erickson didn't leave any trace in America, you have 
earlier in the century, all of these writers and you have people making these very outlandish claims that he did that then, I mean, it's not like you could go look at Snopes or Wikipedia mm-hmm. and figure out somebody was lying. Right. It was really easy to say, oh, yeah, well, look, Leif Erikson was in Massachusetts and blah, blah, blah. Probably, you know, not correct, but at that point in time, honestly, if it was in a book, I was pretty, like, apt to believe it as a child, I'll be honest. Right. Well, and yeah, we have things like the baking powder guy claiming that Cambridge, Massachusetts had been the capital of the Viking Empire of Norumbega, putting together extremely scrappy evidence in an extremely creative way. But yeah, at the time, it was not quite appreciated that um, Erickson's voyages to Vinland didn't really leave much lasting trace on North America and wouldn't even be discovered until the 1960s. But a fellow named Aaron Goodrich, this is back in 1874, a diplomat, an ambassador for part of his career, laid it down with a book called A History of the Character and Achievements of the So-Called Christopher Columbus. And he wrote, while the greater part of Europe was plunged in the intellectual darkness which pervaded the Middle Ages, while the monk in his cloister toiled laboriously during a lifetime to perpetuate some one work of saintly or classic lore, and the masses were ignorant, superstitious, the slaves of feudal lords and barons scarcely less ignorant than themselves, a people flourished in the extreme north with whom enterprise and freedom were neither dead nor stagnant, who possessed scientific knowledge and applied the same to practical purposes, a people simple, fearless, and energetic, republicans in practice if not in name, a pagan people indeed, worshippers of Odin and Thor, believers in the joys of Valhalla, yet doers of deeds so noble as to be worthy of the most enlightened Christian, Such were the Northmen, such their simple records which bear every impress of truth prove them to have been. So, yeah, Goodrich is slanting the Norse people to look like the way Americans would like to think of themselves. I think we'd still like to think of ourselves as, you know, people of enterprise and freedom and practical knowledge and, you know, energetic and, you know, he says Republican, not necessarily meaning the political party, but Republican in the sense of guaranteeing liberties and rights to everyone instead of being ruled by tyrants. And he writes about the Vikings coming. They were actuated by motives far different from those of Columbus. They did not come in search of gold or slaves but to gather by industry the natural products of the land. No absurd visions of untold wealth haunted their brain, nor did they seek by false representations to inveigle others into bearing all the burdens while they should reap all the profits of their expeditions. They were the worthy pioneers of European settlement on our shores, a hardy race, counting on their own labor to develop the natural resources of the lands they discovered. So yeah, the Vikings didn't want anything to do with gold or slaves. Oh, heavens, no. That's probably the funniest uh, statement in the whole book. 
knowing what we do about what the actual Vikings were very much in search of, but he's slanting them to look like the way Americans would like to think of themselves. You know, we didn't come here in quest of gold or or anything other than a chance for to build a life from honest labor and toil and the the sweat of our brows, building it up through honest labor and and profit. And all day long we work in the field and we come home at night to a home-cooked meal. We love you like Sunday, treat you like Saturday night. Okay, my wife has just yelled, what the hell, so I better better stop. It's funny, I keep talking about attitudes like this, I keep coming back to country music, but it's the kind of attitude that you know I think Americans would like to they would like to think of themselves in this way. But I want to tie this to somewhere else for a minute. All right. And that is in Britain. Mm-hmm. Because roughly around this same time, you have the translations of the Eddas and sagas going on in Britain, which we talked about in our British Romanticism episode. Mm-hmm. And you have the same phenomenon going on in Britain where Brits are projecting their values and who they think they are onto the Vikings as well. So this was a thing. And I would say that to some degree in this era, you're also looking at the German Romanticism slash falling into uh, Guido von Liszt of very similar nationalistic sentiments that are being wrapped in the idea that I have this heritage from the Vikings, their Germanic people. There is by and far a almost Western phenomenon at this point of this kind of behavior and this kind of justification of values that are all because they're projected on this very idealized culture. And so what you end up getting is a very filtered view that is very much coming through the lens of what you're trying to project your nation as. Yeah, the Vikings are kind of, you know, perfect white people coming in search of, you know, honest labor and free trade and free enterprise and democracy, you know, not like those European nations that are ruled by by tyrants and despots and kings that are so inbred they basically consist of nothing but chin you know they're free and they're they're noble and sure they might kill you and enslave your family and take your gold but you know can a boy have a little fun now and again and i suspect it's this if you go back to one of our earliest episodes we talked about the boyhood of a texas lad by the name of steve mcnallen reading conan the barbarian novels and then picking up edson marshall's book the viking and getting very inspired by this. And I think a lot of – you could argue that an awful lot of his career has been presenting the Vikings as sort of you know perfect shining examples of white Americans. That's the same kind of projection of values. But I want to point out that a lot of this – and we're, we're going to get into a little more of it. A lot of this is the same scholarship that was either directly used or directly influenced – the books, the writings, things like the encyclopedia that the earliest of modern heathens, especially in America, used. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I think this is such a critical period in American history as far as the influence of what heathenry has become in the United States and what it was, especially the earliest times, because this is essentially the root of the source material that was sitting in your local public library in the 1960s and 70s. There was a Swedish immigrant in Chicago, a woman named Ottilie Lilienkrantz, who wrote novels at about the same time that we're talking about, about the time of the world's Columbian Exposition. She wrote novels of Vikings in America. Some of them were set in the Norumbega Empire that Eamon Horsford had come up with. And one of them was actually the basis for the first all-technicolor movie. Uh, was actually, I think it was still a silent film, but it was in color. One of the first all-color movies that there was was based on one of her novels, and it was another one of these epics about the bold and fearless and noble Vikings, kind of a predecessor of the Vikings movie of the 50s that's mostly famous for Kirk Douglas walking on the oars of a ship and Tony Curtis saying, Hail Ragnar. Hail Ragnar's beard. Hail Ragnar's beard, right. Yeah, this is the root, this romanticized view is where a lot of you know early concepts of what the Vikings were like are coming from, and it's the vein that Steve McNallan was very definitely tapping into when he founded the Viking Brotherhood and started publishing the Runestone back in 1970, was it 71 or 72? It's in our notes somewhere. Yeah. Hey, listen, if you haven't listened to our two-part episode, two, two, two parts on Steve McNallan, go listen. It's great. Yeah. You think the, the songs in this are bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, while you were talking, I was thinking of another one. I was thinking to myself, you know, be a Viking. You can sail the seven seas. Be a Viking. You can put your mind at ease. Be a Viking. You can colonize the land, be the Viking. Can't you see Tear needs a hand? Oh. Okay, my wife is yelling at me again, so I think I'd better stop. <laughs> so in 1892, which would have been the same year as the anniversary and around all the same time, Marie Brown publishes The Icelandic Discoverers of America or Honor to Whom Honors Do, which Basically is like a massive rant against the Catholic Church as the epitome of tyranny and Catholic immigrants as traitors. Oh. The members of this church are consequently the only class of immigrants to the United States who are not loyal to the institutions of the country they live in, who do not in any sense assimilate with the principles of these institutions. Under the guise of American citizens, they are actually traitors only waiting for the moment when they can deal a death blow to the government and rulers their medieval superstition has taught them to abhor. The first Roman Catholic candidate for the presidency was Al Smith in the 1920s, and there were cartoons of Al Smith kneeling to the Pope and taking orders from him and you know, putting cardinals in charge of the cabinet and things like that. And a little bit muted, but there was some of that when John F. Kennedy became president. There were people that were worried he was just going to take his orders from the Vatican. So, yeah, the prejudice has dwindled a bit, I suppose. But, you know, 
it still reverberates into much later history. And she accused Columbus as being a slave trader and a fraud who had stolen his knowledge from an Icelandic manuscript anyway and then gotten the Pope to assign all of the New World to Spain. And the idea was that if we recognize Columbus's discovery, we'd basically be admitting that Spain owned all of the New World under the primacy of the Catholic Church. And I don't know, we were all going to start praying the rosary and dancing flamenco and fighting bulls or something like that. I don't I don't know. I like paella. I could be behind this. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'll take the paella. I don't particularly feel like fighting bulls. I've I've seen bullfights and I don't care to see more. Yeah, I I'm not I'm not good with that, but I I'm good with the paella. Not so much the pope, but I'll take the paella. I'll take flamenco dancing. Okay. And uh apparently most of the people in America in my age learned Castilian Spanish when they learned Spanish, so but all right. I learned actual Latin American Spanish, which apparently was weird, I discovered when I went to college. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, if we speak Castilian, we have to learn to uh, lisp all our Zs. So the whole thing that she wanted to bring in was that the Norse were the true spiritual ancestors of America. And she goes on to say, the true tendency of America was given when the Norsemen landed on its shores. It was good augury for the future nation, for these were brave, free, high-minded men, a men of a race who had planted the seeds of liberty in many a state of Europe, and who did it in this case unwittingly from the mere force of their splendid nationality. Am I reading this correct? Is she basically saying their whiteness made us cool? Yeah, or their um, just their innate Nordic awesomeness implanted seeds of liberty in what would later become the United States, except it was actually Canada, but never mind that. Yeah, again, it's claiming the Norse, even though they didn't accomplish anything really lasting in North America, it's claiming them as the spiritual ancestors, because not only did they get here first, but they licked it before anybody else did, and so therefore America somehow has this spiritual infusion of Nordic liberty at its very foundation. So it's like metagenetics, but on a national level? Something like that, yeah. Oh. Yeah, America is somehow genetically Nordic in its uh, love of liberty, hard work, and free trade, even though they stayed for less than 10 years and then left and left North America completely alone after that for... 500 years or more. Well, ain't that nice. So, yeah. So that's the argument that, that that's making. And these are the ways that history gets deployed. These are the ways that different groups try to stake out claims as being part of America, as having the right to be here. And that was echoed by a guy named Rasmus B. Anderson who was the first professor of Scandinavian studies in the United States. He was a professor at University of Wisconsin. He founded the um, – well, it wasn't really a society. It was basically a, a printing initiative of his. But he founded this initiative called the Norena Society, which put out very nicely made, beautifully done editions of – sagas 
in English translation. He contributed a lot towards increasing knowledge of you know medieval saga literature in the United States. And he also published a book called America Not Discovered by Columbus in 1874, which reintroduced the Vinland sagas. And he was a tireless advocate for the Scandinavian immigrant community who'd been flocking to the Midwest. Between 1820 and 1920, over 1.1 million Swedes and nearly 700,000 Norwegians immigrated along with Danes and Finns and even a few Icelanders. And being mostly Protestant and white-skinned, they had a slightly easier time assimilating than some, but there was still some prejudice against them. I actually found out that there is a slang word, a derogatory word for somebody who's Swedish. All right, You know how we have all of these hateful words for Italians or Poles or... Irish or people like that. Yeah. Well, apparently the word you use when you want to insult a Swedish American is swodok. S-W-O-D-O-C-K. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. I, I can't I, I can't imagine using it because I can't imagine a circumstance in which I would actually want to insert somebody who's Swedish. I mean, they're so generally inoffensive people. They have great chefs, great fish. Yeah, amiable coffee drinkers who make high-quality, inexpensive furniture that's easy to assemble, you know? Yeah. Why would you want to insult the Swedes? But evidently someone did. They still face prejudice in some areas where they were moving in. And in particular, they had moved into the upper Midwest, notably Wisconsin and there was a big community in Chicago for a time. There were some in Iowa. And, of course, ground zero is Minnesota. Yeah, sure. I would do some Prairie Home Companion references, but we've canceled Garrison Keeler, So there you have it. So one of the things that I do as a kind of a side project is I help inclusive youth organizations with public relations issues. And uh, I've been meeting with some people in Minneapolis and discovering just how many kindreds there are just in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was baffled, like, wow, the heathen community, the inclusive heathen community there runs deep. Just going to say mm-hmm. shout out to all y'all fighting the good fight. Keep at it. But it's interesting. I do want to put in one small point before we move on about the Norena Society. Mm hmm. There is a current organization that calls themselves that. They are, A, not the same organization. They're just mm-hmm. reusing the name. B, racists. So I'm just putting that out there just in case you go looking and you find a book from the Norena Society. I mean, if it's an antique book in an antique bookstore from 1874, sure, you betcha. But... The modern Norena Society basically has co-opted this name and is using it as a means, using that historical validity of Anderson to sell. Essentially, most of it looks to be reprints of public domain translations of the Edison sagas. So, right. Yeah, they've got some original writing of their own and the scholarship on there is just really dodgy. Yeah, they they published this book called the Ausatru Edda, which 
actually, we ought to talk sometime coming up about a guy named Victor Rydberg. Yes. Because he's very influential on the version of the lore that they espouse, even though nobody else does anymore, not these days. But maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. I just felt that it was my moral obligation to put that warning out there. Because I don't want someone to go out and buy a book thinking that it's tied back into this, like, historical group run by a professor who had problematic ideas, don't get me wrong. But, yeah, I just, like I said, that was more of a consumer warning than anything else. I just felt like I needed to to deal with that. Yeah, the the new Narena Society is not the same as the old Narena Society. Yes. All right. So stepping back in time a little bit to 1862, we've got a very unfortunate incident in U.S. history. Minnesota had just become a state, uh, I think just 10 years prior, maybe less than that. And in 1862, of course, most of the country is deeply involved in fighting the Civil War. But there were bands of Dakota Native Americans in Minnesota – Uh, living along the Mississippi River, and through an assortment of treaties that had, of course, been broken, they'd been forced onto a very small land grant and then forced to surrender half of that, and they were starving. The U.S. government was supposed to provide food and other benefits as a, a compensation for taking their land, but they weren't doing it. The uh, Indian agents of the time were notoriously corrupt, and again, with the Civil War going on, the federal government kind of didn't exactly have their eye on the ball. When a group of Dakota petitioned the local Indian agent, as he was called, to give them some help, he helpfully suggested that they could just go eat grass or, quote, eat their own dung. This didn't go over very well, and starving – With no help in sight, with their children beginning to die, there were some bands of Dakota that started revolting beginning on August 17th. They attacked farms. They massacred people. They attacked forts and settlements and stagecoach depots. And on the one hand, they did kill women and children, and at least two did commit rapes. On the other hand, once you've been told, basically, quit bothering me and just go off somewhere and starve to death, screw you, which is basically what the agent told them, you can certainly understand why they would be extremely angry. The body of that Indian agent was later found with his mouth stuffed full of grass. And despite some early victories, unfortunately, the Federal Army sent General John Pope who had just lost the second battle of Bull Run, but unfortunately was a little bit better at fighting the Dakota. He defeated them on September 23rd at the Battle of Wood Lake. 300 Dakota men were sentenced to death. Abraham Lincoln did read the facts in the case and try to be a bit more fair than that, and he commuted the sentences of all but 38 Dakota men who were proved to have massacred women and children, okay, proved after a very hasty trial, but this was probably the best deal he was going to get. The 38 were hanged in Mankato, Minnesota on December 26th. That's the largest mass execution in U.S. history, 
and the rest of the tribe was expelled from Minnesota along with a number of bands of Dakota and Ho-Chunk people who had not risen up in revolt at all. There were some that many were still determined to stay peaceful and they got expelled as well. Many of them went to uh, to the Dakotas. And the reason this matters is its background for talking about this thing called the Kensington Runestone. Oh, the Kensington Runestone. So 1898, there's this Swedish immigrant farmer. He's out cutting some trees down. Guy named Olaf Ullman. And I've read this story a million times, and I always picture him as like the great something grandfather of uh, Rose Nyland from the Golden Girls. Because that's how dumb this is. <laughs> you know, that works, you know, he might have been. So. Oh, yes, back in St. Olaf at the annual herring festival. <laughs> we shoot herring out of a cannon. <laughs> exactly. So. One year it landed in a tree. He's pulling stumps. That is far being all farmery outside of Kensington, Minnesota. And he finds a runestone entangled in the roots of a tree. Now, according to this runestone, and it's told of an expedition of Swedes and Norwegians who had passed through in 1362, had gone fishing and returned to find 10 of their party massacred by, hmm, could it have been uh, Native Americans? Quite possibly. Huh, sounds familiar. Eight Gotalandos and 22 Northmen on this acquisition journey from Vinland far to the west. We had a camp by two shelters one day's journey north from this stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, found ten men red from blood and dead. Ave Maria, save from evil. There are ten men by the inland sea to look after our ship's fourteen days journey from this peninsula. Year 1362. Yeah. My apologies for the accent. I hope our... Scandinavian listeners have not uh, just, you know, turned off the podcast in a in a snit. I was, yeah, I probably should not do accents. Anyway, word of this spread, and some academics take a look at the inscription and decide that it's a modern forgery because it uses forms of the language that would not have actually been used in the year 1362. It doesn't look like old Swedish of the time language for which we do have plenty of documents, it looks more like something that a modern Swedish farmer might have come up with if he was trying to make the inscription look old. That might have been that, but there were those that really, really wanted to claim it as genuine, and probably the biggest was a guy named Hjalmar Holland, a Norwegian, who spent 50 years relentlessly arguing that the Kensington runestone must be genuine. He claimed that Olaf Ullman was too uneducated to have faked the stone. It turns out that he was actually quite well-educated. He had a good personal library and knew about runes and history. But Holland argued the fact that it was found tangled in the roots of a tree showed that it must be old, although nobody was actually witnessed it being found, so we have to take people's word for that. And Holland retraced what he thought was the expedition route. Uh, The Vikings had come in, well, 
okay, technically they weren't Vikings because the Viking age had been over for 300 years, but everybody seems to think they were. The explorers had sailed all the way into Hudson Bay. They'd traveled down the Red River of the North, which flows from Hudson Bay. I think that's actually part of the border between Minnesota and the Dakotas. So they'd come down through central Canada and were heading south, and they were camped west of a place called Cormorant Lake where they were attacked by natives. Uh, he claimed that along the way he'd found some stones with chipped holes, which must have been where the expeditions tied their boats up. And so he made this very big deal about this and wrote a steady flood of pamphlets and books and letters and you know, tried to get the Smithsonian to come out and take a look and uh, really plug this thing. And it's worth noting that that story of 10 men red with blood and dead would have resonated with the Scandinavians because there would have been a few older people who could still remember the Dakota War of 1862 and certainly people who'd been told about it by you know parents and grandparents who had lived through it. So certainly makes for a story that a lot of Scandinavians up there could identify with. Hey, Ben, you know yeah. how I know that isn't true? How do you know it isn't true? Because Iceland didn't adopt the uh, Gregorian calendar until the 17th century when Denmark did. Oh, okay. So they wouldn't have used Gregorian years. They wouldn't have said 1362 because, I mean, no offense, that's kind of, you know, that wouldn't have be how they would have marked time. They would have still been using the old calendar, the Masiri calendar. Hmm. Okay. All right. That might be. Which was adopted by the Icelandic, the first Icelandic thing. Okay. Or they might have um, been more likely to date it not from, you know, the birth of Christ, but, you know, in the fifth year of the reign of King such and such or something like that. Right. Also, I, I feel like I, I've got to take my opportunity to talk a, a minute about him finding this. Mm -hmm. So essentially, no one was there in the roots where it happened, the roots where it happened, the roots where it happened. Ooh. Oh, very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. I, I try to keep it a little, a little, you know, modern, a little constant. The rotten pun song Jedi has taught you well, young Padawan. Yes. Okay, good. And thanks to the efforts of people like Holland and Anderson, uh, local boosters started perpetuating this idea of the Vikings in Minnesota. Some of it probably had more to do with a desire to attract tourists to what is even today a kind of out-of-the-way part of America than it did with enthusiastic acceptance. But a lot of people in you know, Alexandria, Minnesota – were probably in favor of just about anything that would put their town on the map. It may have faded in recent years, but there was long this attitude of being a civic booster meant that you had to talk up your own town and make it look good and do everything you could to make it recognized as an awesome place to live so that people would come there and make it even more awesome. So you have the civic boosterism that's really talking up the stone – 
It lasts at least until the 1960s. The stone is now in the town of Alexandria, Minnesota, in a special museum. In the 60s, it was actually displayed at another World's Fair, the one in New York in 1964, as an attraction that it would be hoped would draw people to, you know, move to Minnesota and invest in it and all of that. The town of Alexandria raised a statue of a Viking warrior who used to be in the middle of Main Street. Uh, he's now off in a park, but he's wearing a winged helmet and carrying a spear and holding a shield with uh, the words Birthplace of America written on it, and they call him Big Ole. There's this 28-foot Viking in a winged helmet uh, named Big Ole keeping watch over Alexandria, Minnesota. Which makes me wonder if Weird Al Yankovic might have visited that place on his way to uh, the biggest ball of twine. Yes. If you know that song. We did see that together, the Weird Al show together last year. Yeah, 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 I forgot. Yeah, they they played that at the concert we went to. So. Yeah. Because of this, now we start seeing pageants to retell this story of these Viking warriors who came in. Like you do, because pageants were a thing. You see lots of those, whether it be, and that was another civic booster kind of thing. Uh, we had them here. One of the biggest ones that I know of that's still ongoing is a kind of similar kind of morality tale in Branson, Missouri called Shepherd of the Hills. Right. Yeah, that's been going on for over a century. I saw it when I was three, and I'm 41. So, yeah. And the pageants in uh, Minnesota, uh, for one of them, they built a replica Viking ship. I'm getting a lot of this from a book by David M. Kruger called Myths of the Runestone, Viking Martyrs and the Birthplace of America. And he's got some great pictures from the local historical society of people wearing horn helmets uh, parading around, you know, in parades and holding this pageant and things like that. It was It was kind of a big deal. There were comic books that came out. There were, in the 60s, Alexandria, Minnesota bought uh, Olaf Ullman's farm and made it the uh, site of a museum and park and interpretive center. They've also built a replica of the kind of blockhouse that the settlers built to defend against the Dakota, which kind of ties that bit of history in a in a circle. And... Minnesota, of course, got its NFL team in 1960, and part of the reason why they chose Vikings as the mascot was a nod to the Kensington Runestone. The official reason was that it was tribute to, quote, the venturesome people who first populated the state. So if you're wondering why Minnesota has blonde people in pigtails and horned helmets on the uh, helmets of their football team, that's ultimately why. And, yeah, so you can see how this myth of Viking settlers in North America was used to give, I guess, legitimacy to Scandinavian American settlements and kind of weave them into America's weird. It was also used by the Catholic Church. There was actually a local priest that set up a shrine to Our Lady of the Runestone because the Kensington Runestone has Ave Maria or AVM, it's just abbreviated, 
because it's got that carved on it. It's evidence for the first ever prayer to the Virgin Mary spoken in North America. And unfortunately, it never really caught on because most Scandinavians weren't Catholic and most Catholics aren't Scandinavian. But all the same, this was used to legitimize Catholic settlement because these first hardy Vikings in North America had obviously been been Catholics. And maybe they were trying to convert the uh, savage Native Americans to uh, – to the correct religion or something like that. In some quarters, they were seen almost as martyrs for the faith. And then that doesn't explain the other rune stones that we got. Has anyone come up with a reason why in the world the Vikings would sail to eastern Oklahoma? And actually, I want to talk about those for a minute. So starting in, I believe, the 1920s and continuing on for quite a while, you have a discovery of several runestones in eastern Oklahoma, the first one being the Hevener runestone, which we've touched on before because they have a quite fun Hevener Viking festival there. And it was brought in as some sort of evidence that, and I kid you not, because I had to listen to somebody talk about this at Pagan Pride one year in Little Rock, the Vikings sailed around Florida up the Mississippi River up the Arkansas River, and he had fun fake names for all these rivers. That's what the Vikings called them. I don't remember it because it was like 10 years ago. And eventually stopped in eastern Oklahoma where they carved a series of runestones. And his thing was that the leader of this band of Vikings was a fierce warrior named Gloam because the Hevener runestone essentially says Gloam's Valley. Glomedal. Yes. He was a fearless warrior, but evidently a rotten navigator. Why would anybody go to eastern Oklahoma for any reason at all? I mean, they didn't have the casinos back then. Like they hooked up with a Native American guide. It was very Lewis and Clark meets the Vikings. Mm -hmm. It was quite possibly one of the weirdest things I've ever attended. And that includes the weird guy with the Armenian runes. Pagan pride. Gotta love it. Oh, good grief. Him. Oh, man. Yeah, well, I've got a Hevener story like that. I don't remember much about Trothmoot 2010 because that was where my wife called me in mid-moot and told me that we were going to be having a kid. And I spent most of Trothmoot walking around like I'd been, you know, hit over the head with a shovel. You know, news like that tends to be a bit distracting. But it was held up in Minnesota, and they brought in somebody who was going to give a talk about the Hevener runestone. I mean, even though dating from 1362, allegedly, it's not Viking and it's not pagan, and it mentions the Virgin Mary, but still there's interest in this sort of thing. And they brought in this speaker, and he started talking about it at first, and you know, everybody was kind of into this and interested with what it was talking about. And then he said, and then the Knights Templars brought the Holy Grail and everybody just kind of went, oh, God, it's that going to be that kind of talk. So there are people today who are convinced that the Hevener runestone contains the key to um, where the Holy Grail is and it was laid 
down by the Knights Templars who were, I don't know what they were doing in Minnesota, but I'm sure they had a reason. Maybe the Kensington Runestone is actually directions to the castle. Uh. So the great thing, Hevener has been studied pretty extensively by scholars. So you have archaeologist Ken Feeder who has come in and basically said, listen, unlike the situation in eastern Canada where evidence has been found, it's very unlikely that the Norse would get significantly more fastidious about leaving evidence in Oklahoma than they would have in eastern Canada. Mm-hmm. Lyle Thompson, who is an archaeologist, did his master's thesis on the Hebrew Roomstone. He was at the University of Leicester. And he noted that, A, there's no cultural evidence for Vikings. There's no Norse to approach the translation that fits. Scandinavian presence in the nearby town of Hevener is probably where this came from. And all the other runestones of the region are modern creations or misinterpretations of Native American rock art, which is the situation you find also with the Poinsett County runestone in East Arkansas. Wait, there's a runestone in East Arkansas? We've talked about this. It's in Paragould. Oh, okay. The museum in Paragould. It's most likely Native American art, they've decided now. But yeah, so they bring in Henrik Williams. Now, Henrik Williams is a very well-respected professor of Nordic languages at the University of Uppsala. Uh, they bring him in in 2015 as part of a tour sponsored by the American Association for Runic Studies, which, not to be confused with other organizations like the Rune Guild and that yada, 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 American Association for Runic Studies is an academic association of people who study the linguistics of runes like they study history and linguistics they're an actual like academic organization and so he basically goes in and says like linguistically this makes no sense and none of the american inscriptions ever found have any kind of layout or ornamentation and that's a thing that doesn't fit the pattern so there are three other stones in Oklahoma. The Poto Stone, which was found in 1967 in Oklahoma, as well as the Shawnee and Pawnee, which were found by three children in 1969, awful close to that other one, in Shawnee, Oklahoma, near the North Canadian River. Anyway, so you have that... Professor Don G. Wyckoff comes in and says, of the University of Oklahoma, and says, listen, this is Permian sandstone. And if you're not aware, Ben and I both have backgrounds in, in geology and fossils. Permian sandstone would have eroded to the point that none of that would have looked like a rune. It would have just looked like a stone because it's very super soft. And the inscription was remarkably fresh and not as worn or weathered as the stone's natural surface. Mm. So those were very obviously, and like they even looked at other carved exposures from even 10 years earlier that looked a lot more worn and weathered. And both the Shawnee and Pawnee runestones, they say Midok, M-I-D-O-K in Elderfuth Ark, which if they were from the exploratory period, right, mm-hmm. they would have not written in Elder Futhark. Elder Futhark was Proto-Norse, Proto-Germanic. Right. So the actual Vikings would have written in the younger Futhark. Right. So 
there are a ton of these things. And then also there's one other one that was found in Maine in this same time period. So in 1971, Ben, what happened in ni- around 1971? The Viking Brotherhood began to publish the runestone. Yep. And these are a group of small stones that claim to be map stones. And basically they have Arab numerals. Mm-hmm. They're a bad fake. They're like a hugely bad fake, even though a lot of rune enthusiasts claim that they are from 1401. And there's also some fake coins that were found in a prehistoric archaeological site near there around the same time. So, like, we have a history in America of making fake runes to try to connect ourselves with the Vikings. Remember, the the very first issue of the runestone, Steve McNallan writes about a report that he's heard that somebody's found a Viking ship in the California desert. Oh, God, that thing. You remember that? Yes, and we talk about that pretty extensively in our Steve McNallan, the Mm-hmm. Second episode, right. along with Kennewick Man. So, yeah, I mean, the point of this very long episode that we've recorded that kind of comes back in, and the last one is all of this stuff directly ties in to the mindset and information that was available when modern heathenry started, especially in North America. Right. And a lot of that in turn ultimately comes from these efforts of different immigrant groups to try to be the one that, you know, going back to what we started with, you know, to being the one that manages to to lick the monkey bars first and, you know, claim that they're here because they've got a right to be here. We didn't even talk about it, but there have been claims that uh, Prince Madoc of Wales sailed to America long before Columbus or uh, St. Brendan of Ireland made a voyage across the North Atlantic and, you know, put their stamp on North America long before Columbus uh, or even before Leif Erikson ever got there. And a lot of this is ultimately just part of the United States' uniquely tangled ethnic history where different groups are jockeying for entrance into the upper echelons of proper white society that really do belong here. While, of course, the actual Native Americans are probably just watching the whole thing and just kind of shaking their heads and probably muttering things that I probably should not repeat because some of this ties in with efforts to kind of delegitimize the Native American presence on the continent. I think we've talked about that before. Yes. And this just kind of occurred to me, but Stinger McNallan grew up in North Texas it's not that far of a jaunt from the north of Dallas to Oklahoma. Tons of people do it to go to the casinos. So the idea that these runestones would have been discovered long about the time that he was in college. So I'm not saying that it was a direct influence, but it certainly could have been a a cultural jog, like Mm-hmm. Kind of like when you're you're having a conversation with your spouse about something and you remember, oh, crap, we need toilet paper. Just one of those things that could have potentially been like a, a subliminal, like, hey, Vikings. So 
it was there and very vivid in the culture at the time where he was. All right. And from there, it kind of enters into American Ossetru's founding DNA, if you will. I mean, how many how many times have we gone to heathen stuff where someone has suggested we go to Heathner? Like where we're either in Oklahoma or we're in Northwest Arkansas. It's a thing. Like it's and people will argue with me to this day that the Heathner runestone is real. And I'm like, are you high? I mean, I'm just curious. I'm still trying to figure out why the Vikings would sail up the Mississippi and Arkansas rivers to get to eastern Oklahoma. Like, wouldn't it be easier to sail down the rivers than up them? What would draw them there? I mean, the casinos weren't built at that time, so what are they going to do? What does anyone do in eastern Oklahoma? Meth. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, first of all, a huge apologies to our friends in Bifrostway. I love you guys, but... Mm-hmm. That's also what you do in East Arkansas, so I can't really throw stones. Well, that must explain how they were able to row up the Mississippi River. Exactly. Ah! We have an exciting, exciting, exciting show for you next week, guys, and I'm really excited. We're going to be recording live at Frith Forge, the International uh, Conference of Inclusive Heathenry, and that is going to include an interview with Esteban Sevilla who is the founder of the first kindred in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the influence of Germanic cultures in the colonization of Costa Rica. We're going to talk about how their kindred formed and just information about basically, we actually have a chance to sit down and talk to like the person who did it. So it's going to be a great living history episode next time. So I'm really excited about this. And uh, unfortunately, this will this will air after Frith Forge, so I can't tell you to show up, but I'm really excited. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. So, the Heathen History Podcast is brought to you by us. The letters T and U and the number 7. <laughs> you go to our website at heathenhistory.com. You can get our show notes, links to our social media presence, our absolutely massive bibliographies where we document all of the crazy things that we say here. And uh, you can support us. Uh, if you'd like, go to patreon.com forward slash heathen history. There are links. There are early access to our shows. And it helps us feed our editor who makes us sound good. Our theme music is Happy Vikings by Roller Music. And for the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.